Chapter 3 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 3 Fighting Time Across the North Atlantic. Time Thursday evening, July 29, 1920. Place Mid Atlantic in latitude 49 degrees 40 minutes west. Dramatis Personae F. W. Casey Baldwin. James Dorset, slightly out of focus, W. W. Nutting. Scene. Cabin of the Typhoon, at an angle varying from 10 to 25 degrees from the horizontal, looking aft. In right foreground, unoccupied pipe berth folded against sheathing. Farther aft, transom on which reclines blanketed form of J.D. in attitude like cartoonist's conception of a morning after. Still farther aft, Galley with drain board and range covered with pots, pans, and dishes in artistic disarray. On left, dresser and two unoccupied bunks filled with heavy clothing, sleeping bags, and Dill's best in countless yellow packages. Seated at table endeavoring to write, with remnants of dinner sliding hither and yon, WWN, cursing softly as coffee slips to leeward and is lost in blanketed form of J.D., Upstage, well-nourished form of FWB, struggling to maintain vertical position, ever and anon coming up sharply on one side or the other as ship rolls, tripping over boots and wet oilskins, and skidding dangerously on oil-soaked floor, the while endeavoring, with all the helplessness of a through-going engineer, to keep the home fire burning in the shipmate range. Farther upstage, companionway steps, beneath which may be seen the shrouded figure of a motor with pressure gauge on air tank registering zero, and out the hatch above, the light of a lantern reflected on the wet mizzenmast and deserted wheel. The ship is sailing herself. WWN reads rough draft of Chapter 3 as follows. So this is the North Atlantic, and these are the Roaring Forties. It isn't half bad, now that we have mastered the art of living under constant motion, and have developed a sort of sixth sense of equilibrium. But it's strenuous beyond the dreams of a landsman. To cook a meal, and no less to eat it in a rolling cabin with never a let-up to the motion, requires several days of adjustment. But we have come through all that, and although J.D. is still a bit out of the picture, we are as hard as the black gang of a submarine chaser. Today marks the completion of a week's run from Cape Race, Newfoundland, and in that week we have covered 1,037 nautical miles, nearly 1,200 land miles. This run was made entirely under sail, and very little of that at times, and never to our knowledge has a small craft of the type of typhoon made a better one. Hard, continuous weather, mostly from the southwest, made possible the rather remarkable daily average for the week of 148.39 nautical miles and if we would count on maintaining this speed for the rest of the voyage, there would be no difficulty in reaching cows in time for the races. But to hold an average speed of 6.18 knots is too much to hope for, and the best we can do is to drive Typhoon for all she is worth without a moment's letdown, and pray to Boreas to remain abaft the beam. In the last chapter we told of the launching of Typhoon, three days after the day on which we had hoped to start for England, it was July 17th before we were actually ready for the takeoff, and even then many things had to be left undone. In those intervening 14 days, the masts were stepped, the spars, standing and running rigging completed, the tender finished, galley and coal bin installed, 
sails bent, bunks, table, and pipe berths finished, motor tried out, ballast, fuel, and water taken aboard, all of which left only time enough for the trial spin mentioned in the last story. On the evening of the 14th, the Little Bra Door Yacht Club gave a party for the crew of the Typhoon, an affair that will always stick in the memory of at least one of those who were present. Never was our old friend Commodore George Hollifield in better form, and the things he said as he made me an honorary member of the club and presented me with the Blue Burgee with its arm of gold, warmed by hospitality and good red punch, so flustered me that I couldn't think of a thing to say, and said it. However, there were those at the memorable little gathering who made up for my own inadequacy. George Kennan, the man who first let the light of day into darkest Siberia, and whose name is a household word among the older generations, told of his first meeting up with the little old Nereus seven years ago. Dr. Graham Bell presented us with a clever apparatus for distilling drinking water from seawater, which he had developed for the typhoon, and drank our health in water distilled with it. Premier Murray of Nova Scotia wished us Godspeed in a bully talk. Commander Dobson and Commander Mann lent an international aspect to the toast list, and old Casey Baldwin, thus far the only other member of the crew, delivered a few intelligent remarks about the purpose of the boat and the cruise, and really made the whole venture sound quite rational. Up to that time, I had been somewhat in doubt as to how to explain the thing. There were more talks and songs, some of them in the native Gaelic of the highland ancestors of Baddock, the same wild free tongue that had hurled down defiance on the Romans centuries before the Norman conquest. And as we went across the lake in the small hours of the night, I felt that if ever I failed to make a go of it in New York, which is entirely possible, there would be at least one place in the world in which I should feel at home. Thus far, little attention has been given to the motor, but the next day we mobilized all the available talent and went at it seriously. In the hurry before leaving town, I had failed to make the run up to the factory to get some pointers on the new oil engine, and this oversight I keenly regretted when it came to trying out the power plant. We found that no adequate instructions had been sent, and none of the punk which is used in starting, and it was then too late to communicate with the shop. I remembered that someone had said something about blotting paper and saltpeter, and with these we finally got a fairly successful fuse that burned neither too fast nor too slowly, and after charging the air tank with the air bottles used in starting the liberties of the HD4, we were ready. We opened the air valves. Nothing happened. Then we tried priming with gasoline and heating the bayonet plug with a blowtorch, and finally with 150 pounds of air we got her going, and a world that had begun to look as gloomy as the Grand Banks took on a much more cheerful aspect. It was gratifying to see that we had guessed right, and that Typhoon actually did about five miles under power. With the motor we ran our pressure up to 250 pounds, but found that we lost it rapidly due to an imperfect seat in the safety valve on the tank. When we stopped the motor, we found that the plunger, which is actuated by the starting cam, had stuck, and by the time this was taken down and corrected, our air pressure was too low to turn her over. We took off the safety valve and plugged the hole in the tank, and then repeated the operation, having no difficulty in starting with 200 pounds of air. But we were working into the dark, and doubtless went to a lot more trouble than would have been necessary had we been supplied with proper instructions. The problem of a crew not yet having been solved 
We looked about for an available third hand and hit on James Dorset, a young chap from Washington who was spending the summer keeping the liberties of the HD4 in condition. Jim had never been to sea, but his enthusiasm and adaptability were sufficient qualifications, and we signed him on and decided to let it go at that. I must confess that I was relieved, for I had felt that while two university-trained mechanical engineers could sail Typhoon to England, we might need a little practical assistance on the motor. But one day remained before the 17th, the day we had decided on for the start, and this day was spent largely in taking things aboard. The 200-gallon water tank was filled, six water breakers were chalked and lashed along the sides of the cockpit, all but one bag of a ton of hard coal was stowed, part in the coal bin and the rest in the lazarette, together with some kindling. Our 75 fathoms of chain was stowed aft of the motor, and our spare rope was placed part in the cockpit and part forward. Then about 700 pounds of pig lead was fitted in around and forward of the motor bed, and we were ready for our stores. Long into the night we worked getting the canned goods stowed, checking off the various items and making a note of where they were placed as we went along. In a small boat where every last bit of space is utilized, this matter of keeping a list of what the various lockers contain is of great importance and saves a lot of time and effort when you get to sea. Later, as we used the stores, we checked them off, and in this way maintained a sort of running inventory, obviating the necessity of going through the lockers when restocking on the other side. The next day was Saturday, July 17th, the day we had set for the start, and it was spent in taking aboard and storing our personal effects, Waltham chronometer, navigating instruments, charts, and cooking utensils. It wasn't as though we could put in now and then pick up the odds and ends that might be overlooked, Except for the possibility of a hurried call at Saint-Pierre-Miquelon, our first stop would be the Isle of Wight, or possibly Queenstown, Ireland. Nothing could be overlooked. The man who puts to sea in a well-found ship has a comparatively easy job of fitting out. His boat has been tried out, his gear is in working order, he knows the deviation of his compass, he already has accumulated, through long experience with his craft, those innumerable little odds and ends, tools, spare parts, and the like, that go to make up the equipment of a boat, and he has them stowed in convenient places. All he needs to worry about is the stores and duffel for that particular cruise. But our ship was new, not really finished, in fact. She had not been swung for deviation, and the mass of gear and stores had not gravitated to their most convenient places, as they will only in the course of time. And then, just as we thought we had everything aboard, there arrived a lot more stores, Eighteen dozen eggs packed in salt, several cases of ginger ale and the other important ingredient of a ginger ale highball, a cold roast of beef, oranges, bananas, fresh bread, and a crock of butter. And when these were safely below decks, it was obvious that we should have little comfort until we had eaten a hole out of the chaos big enough to turn around in. It was a strenuous day, and it was dark before we were ready to pull out for Baddock across the lake, from which point the official start was to be made. Sidney Brees planned to convoy us possibly as far as the Miquelon Islands, and he already had left in the Philatonga with Commander Mann and Commander Dobson aboard, when at 9.20 p.m. we cast off from the dock below Baldwin's bungalow, waved a last goodbye to the little group on the pier, and slipped off for Baddock Light under jib and mizzen. Our electric lighting outfit, 
which had been shipped from Dayton four months before, had not yet arrived, and there was a last-minute scramble for lamps, several of which we commandeered from Pinod's Alexander. These necessitated extra chimneys and more kerosene, and there was signal oil to be found for the English lamp we had fitted to our binnacle, in case we should have trouble with the dry cells which we were forced to use as a source of current for the Polaris electrically lighted compass. And then, too, there was alcohol at $7 a gallon to start the Primus stove, which we carried in gimbals as an auxiliary to our shipmate. When these things and a few others had been attended to, to the accompaniment of songs from a visiting choir and innumerable farewells, we were ready to start the motor and get underway. But the air pressure had dropped again, necessitating considerable exercise with the hand pump, contributed by enthusiastic volunteers, before we got her going. Then a farewell booster, a handshake with old George Hollifield, and our fellow members of the Bradour Club, and we were off at 1.40 a.m. July 18th. As we rounded Benbreak Point, 20 minutes later, we hoisted full sail to a light southwest breeze and under power and sail headed out Great Bradour Passage for the sea. At 3.50 a.m., the motor stopped for some unknown reason, but although there was practically no wind, a favorable tide carried us briskly on our way. At 7.45, we passed out of Big Bradour with a southwest breeze and streamed the log. At last, we were at sea. Brice crowded all sail on Philatonga and headed for Saint-Pierre and the Alexander, which had accompanied us from Baddock, came alongside, shouted a farewell, and headed back. Then we turned to on the motor. Taking off the air connection plug, we found that water had leaked past the ground joint into the cylinder, and in all probability this water backing into the check valves in the airline had caused trouble. When we got the parts reassembled, we overlooked the fact that the clutch was still engaged, as it had been when the motor stopped, and in attempting to start we lost our air and were unable to get it up to the required pressure again by hand. Things had stiffened up a bit, necessitating more pressure than would have been required normally. There was practically no wind, we were dog-tired, Jim was beginning to feel the effects of the groundswell, and withal the outlook was anything but encouraging. Then, about the middle of the afternoon, Philatonga hove in sight again. Brees came aboard and explained that they had decided to put back to St. Anne's after Tuna instead of continuing on to Saint-Pierre, and as they waved us a bon voyage, chugging off under motor power, our prospects looked anything but bon. In fact, the bottom seemed to have dropped out of our luck entirely. All that night we slatted about in a glassy groundswell absolutely the most exasperating experience in the whole category of unpleasant things. Hell, I am sure, is paved not with good intentions, but with glassy ground swells. Finally, about midnight during my watch, I could stand it no longer, and feeling that the last vestige of a chance to reach cows in time was gone, I took in all sail, snugged the booms in the crutches, and went below and turned in with the rest. At 3 a.m., Casey put sail on her again and was able to make about two knots until 6 a.m. when it went flat again and remained so until about noon, when a light southerly breeze sprang up. Thus far, we had not determined the deviation of our steering compass, except as we could approximate it by comparison with the spare one, which we took forward out of the influence of the motor and iron ballast. But Casey, who has the happy faculty of using his head occasionally for the purpose for which it was intended, got the bearing of the sun as it rose, 
and from this we were able to get a fair idea of our deviation by comparison with the azimuth of the sun for that day as found in the tables, as follows. Sun rose east by north, or roughly 80 degrees. Latitude approximately 46 degrees 30 minutes. Declination from Almanac 20 degrees 55.5 minutes. Azimuth from Birdwood 58 degrees 57 minutes. Variation from Chart 26 degrees 15 minutes. Observed bearing of sun, 85 degrees 12 minutes, 80 degrees 0 minutes, deviation 5 degrees 12 minutes. The only really important piece of equipment we forgot was our prism sighting compass. Had we brought it, such bearings as the above would have been accurate instead of mere approximations, as was necessarily the case when taken by aiming the whole ship at the object or merely looking across the compass card. But for our purpose, an error of two or three degrees made no material difference. Throughout the afternoon, the breeze held, but it was so light that our progress at no time was over a couple of knots. At nine, it picked up a bit, and at ten had attained sufficient weight to warrant taking a single reef in the mainsail. At midnight, we took in the mainsail entirely and made good headway for the rest of the night under jib and mizzen. Our luck was changing. We wanted heavy weather. Tuesday the 20th was one of those ominous days that requires no falling glass to convince you that something unusual is going to happen. Saint-Pierre, that had been so alluring when we were planning the cruise, now took on an entirely different aspect. Logically, we should put in there to correct the trouble that had been developed in our air-starting system. It seemed reasonable to waste another day or two in order that we might depend on the motor for the rest of the passage. Cold, calm reason said that time thus spent would be more than made up later by the motor, but secretly I felt that once we got into Saint-Pierre Harbor, cold calm reason might persuade us that there was not a ghost of a chance of reaching cows in time for the races, and this being the case, what would be the point in sailing across the Atlantic at all? Secretly, I was glad that just at this juncture we got a spell of weather that put Saint-Pierre out of the question entirely, and I think the others were too. Tacitly, we agreed to take the hundred-to-one chance and keep on for England. By three o'clock in the afternoon, the wind had backed so far to the eastward that we were forced to come about on the other tack. Night was coming on, the fog was thick, and we were not sure just how far we were off the Newfoundland coast. The best we could do on the port tack was southeast by south, but we were working out to sea, which was more comfortable than taking chances with one of the deadliest coastlines in the world. Still under jib and mizzen, we kept her headed well into it until we were practically lying to, and all the while the wind and sea were increasing. By nightfall it was blowing a full gale. We should have had the sea anchor ready, and the line rove through the bullnose on the end of the bowsprit so that we could have thrown it over from the cockpit. But the sea anchor was one of those things that hadn't been finished, and even had it been, it was then too late to work forward without a bad drubbing and a 50-50 chance of going overboard. The only thing to do was to stick it out in the cockpit and take a chance that the jib and mizzen would stand the punishment. Steadily the wind increased. I had the wheel for the first night watch, while Casey went below to grab what little rest was possible. Jim was under the weather, and anyway we felt that it was better to take watch and watch and hold him in reserve in case it became necessary to take in sail, when Casey and I would have to work on deck. Crouched down in the shelter of the weather combing, I kept her full and by, luffing her now and then to meet the phosphorescent crests as they bore down on us. Never to my knowledge was her nose actually under it, 
but time and again great masses of broken water came over the weather bow. It was a roaring, wild, wonderful night, the sky pitch black, the sea a driving stampede of weird, unearthly lights. The countless crests of breaking waves made luminous patches in the blackness, as though lit by some ghostly light from beneath the sea, and the tops, whipped off by the wind, cut the sky with horizontal streaks of a more brilliant light, like the sparks from a prairie fire. Never have I seen such phosphorescence. At twelve o'clock, wet and cold from constant drenchings and tired out, I turned the wheel over to Casey. We were carrying too much sail, but we decided to wait for daylight before attempting to take off anything. Below, the sensation was indescribable. The roar of the wind and breaking seas was deadened, but the crash of water as it fell on deck with nearly every sea was terrific. Sleep was out of the question. It was impossible to stay in the weather bunks, and in fact required constant effort to stay put anywhere. Gradually I dozed off into catnaps, to wake with a start with every smash. Now and then I looked out the companionway to see how things were going. Casey, drenched and grinning, was in his element. The wind was still increasing, but there was no trace of concern in his voice as he shouted back a cheerio through the racket. He was enjoying himself, as only the man at the wheel can at such a time. Casey at the wheel offers greater possibilities for poetic treatment than his cognomial predecessor at the bat. By three o'clock, the wind seemed to have dropped a trifle, and as it was then starting to get light, we all went on deck and Jim took the wheel while Casey and I doused the mizzen and secured the boom in its crutch. Running before it, under Jib alone, Typhoon behaved better, or rather was easier, for she had behaved superbly under Jib and mizzen, and we found that she would sail herself beautifully with the wind over the quarter. This being the case, we snugged things down and all went below to sleep until nine o'clock. The next entry in the log reads, 9.15, opened a can of peaches. We had eaten very little. Jim reports success with the peaches. 9.15, although wind and sea high, set mizzen for greater speed. 12 noon, log 201 miles, doing six knots under jib and mizzen. By this time, the weather having cleared, we had got back on our course again with the wind well abaft the beam. Typhoon ran beautifully with none of the predicted rooting. The fine bow and broad stern seemed to work in perfect harmony. Whether the radical features would be justified by unusual speed remained to be seen, but there was no question that her behavior on any point of sailing in a heavy sea was superb. Although we were then well beyond the French islands, we could have made Trepassy Bay without much loss of time, but we decided to hold to our decision to keep on. About this time, we made an annoying discovery. In some way, several gallons of fuel oil had got into the bilge, and during the drubbing of the night before, this oil, floating on the bilge water, had got into everything. Following up inside the sheathing as the ship rolled, it had worked through into the lee berths and cushions, and, had it not been for the fact that most of the food in the lockers on that side was in tins, it would have caused much more damage than it did. We found that we had forgotten to shut off the fuel line at the tanks, and when we healed, the head of pressure created by the upper tank had forced the oil out of the air vent in the filler cap of the lower one. Our rotary bilge pump had not yet been connected up, and it involved considerable labor and acrobatics to bail out the ship by means of a hand pump and pail. 
At 5.45 the following morning, July 22nd, we spoke the schooner James W. Parker of Gloucester and asked him to report us. He gave us our position as about 10 miles southwest of Cape Race, which was a bit off as we sighted the dim outline of the Cape shortly before noon. The log read 337 nautical miles, 359 from Baddock, and from this point we took our departure. End of chapter 3